the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll hear a classic interview with Tilly Dillahay, author of Seeing Green. Don't let envy color your joy. That's coming up later this hour. We'll also cover some of the big headlines of the day. The main headline is that the Louisville police declared a state of emergency ahead of the Breonna Taylor decision that was expected to be announced today, which uh, it has now uh, been announced. That was sort of an awkward way of putting it, but you get the idea. One of three police officers that were involved in that Louisville, Kentucky drug operation that led to the death of Breonna Taylor on the uh, in March of 2020 have been indicted of criminal charges. Officer Brett Hankison, uh, who was fired in June, was indicted on three counts of wanton endangerment in the first degree. A Jefferson County grand jury decided today. Neither the grand jury nor the presiding judge elaborated on those charges. A warrant has been issued for Hankison. Uh, his arrest and bond is set at $15,000. No charges were announced against the two other officers involved in that raid, Miles Cosgrove and Sergeant Jonathan Mattingly, who was shot in the leg and underwent surgery after police operation that resulted in Taylor's death. They had been fired upon and were apparently, according to the law, justified in returning fire. Well, the indictment was announced 194 days after Taylor, the 26-year-old black emergency medical worker, was shot six times by officers who entered her home using a no-knock warrant. However, we learned today that while they had a no-knock warrant, apparently they did knock and announce themselves during a narcotic investigation on the 13th of March. An investigation found that the bullets fired by Hankinson traveled into a neighboring apartment while three residents were home, a male, a pregnant female, and a child. Attorney General Daniel Cameron said at the press conference after the grand jury's announcement, he was not charged in Taylor's death, but rather for endangering her neighbor's lives. Hankinson faces up to five years on each of the three counts if convicted. The decision before my office, um, again, the Attorney General Cameron said, uh, as the special prosecutor in this case was not to decide if the loss of Ms. Taylor's life was a tragedy. The answer to that is unequivocally yes. I understand that Breonna Taylor's death is part of a national story, but the facts and evidence in this case are different than others. Uh, if we simply act on emotion or outrage, there is no justice. Mob justice is not justice, he went on to say. Justice sought by violence is not justice. It just becomes revenge, end quote. Well, despite executing a no-knock warrant, Cameron's office determined, based on interviews with neighbors, that the officers did announce themselves before busting down the door of the apartment occupied by Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. Cameron said Mattingly and Cosgrove were justified under Kentucky law in their use of force after being fired upon by Walker, the boyfriend, and his office will not pursue criminal 
charges against them. According to Kentucky law, the use of force by Mattingly and Cosgrove was justified to protect themselves. This justification bars us from pursuing criminal charges in Ms. Brianna Taylor's death. Walker was charged with the attempted murder of a police officer. The local prosecutors later dropped that charge. He told police he heard knocking but didn't know who was coming into the home and fired in self-defense. Cameron said FBI ballistics determined that the fatal shot that killed Taylor was fired by Cosgrove. Immediately after the announcement, people expressed frustration that the grand jury did not do more. Uh, And uh, while there were demonstrations up to this point, they have been peaceful. There had been a a state of emergency declared uh, leading up to this announcement made earlier in the day. Well, Breonna Taylor's attorney has slammed the Kentucky grand jury's uh, decision today to indict one of the three officers involved in the police-involved shooting death of Taylor as outrageous and offensive. And in fact, they have filed suit. Her family won uh, one suit already in which $12 million will be paid to them uh, after her untimely death. In other news, two people were seriously hurt late Tuesday right here in Northeast Portland, after they fought and one shot the other. Portland police said the two people who had attended a protest outside an East Portland law enforcement building before the altercation were taken to a hospital with serious injuries. Both are expected to survive. A business was also hit in the shooting, which had happened about the 4400 block of Northeast Gleason, according to police. The incitement uh, was the fourth injury shooting in Portland on Tuesday. Police didn't say what led to the altercation. They didn't publicly identify either person by name, age, or gender, but the two people were part of a group that gathered at Laurelhurst Park and marched to Penumbra Kelly Building, a law law enforcement facility shared by the city and Multnomah County at East Burnside Street and 47th. Police said protesters blocked Burnside Street traffic for several hours. Some protesters went on to uh, uh, Penumbra Kelly Building property early Wednesday. Three demonstrators were arrested in that protest, which was the latest nightly assembly against racial injustice. Demonstrators gathered in Portland for over 100 days, took a break when the city was choked with wildfire smoke and resumed protests on Friday night. Tuesday's first shooting happened that afternoon in the uh, 1000 block of North Schmier. Uh, road. A man suffered potentially life-threatening injuries, according to police. The second happened that evening at a home uh, in Southeast uh, Center Street. A woman suffered multiple gunshot wounds and was seriously hurt, police say. The suspect um, has been uh, detained. The third happened that night at uh, Southeast Kelly Street. A man suffered non-life-threatening injuries in that case. Well, the spread of coronavirus in Oregon appears to be on a distressing trajectory upward with daily cases, active hospitalizations and tests, positively positive rates reaching their highest levels in the last month. The Oregon Health Authority on Tuesday reported the highest um, daily case count since August the 15th, announcing 323 or rather 28 confirmed or suspected infections and officials also announced three more deaths. After a long summer decline, Oregon's average daily case count has jumped by more than 30 percent since bottoming out on the 11th of September. Well, Tuesday's tally included typically large numbers in population hubs such as Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas and Marion counties. But the state's also seeing a typical surge in Lane County, uh, where some University of Oregon students are returning, as well as rural Wasco County. The trajectory of the pandemic in Oregon has been unclear in recent weeks with the historic wildfires and a sharp drop in the coronavirus testing. 
Uh, some officials released highly caveated, if that's such a word, modeling last week, suggesting Oregon could see fewer cases moving forward. But officials also acknowledged the modeling seemed to be skewing low and could be an early indicator of a slight increase in transmission. State officials didn't immediately respond to a request for clarification on Tuesday about whether coronavirus is on an upswing. Uh, County by county, the uh, areas where it increased the most, Marion, Multnomah, Washington, Wasco counties, as well as Clackamas County. A 26-year-old Oregonian, initially identified as the state's youngest COVID-19 fatality, tested negative for coronavirus during a specialized screening by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, according to state officials and family members who questioned all along the fact that that individual, this 26-year-old, was lumped together with others who had died of COVID-19, not just with. Matthew Stephen Irvin died on the 10th of July at his apartment in Yamhill County after a sudden and severe illness. He visited the hospital before his death and tested negative for coronavirus. But the Oregon Health Authority labeled it the state's 295th coronavirus fatality, citing a death certificate that listed COVID-19 as a cause or significant condition that contributed to his death. Now, lung samples collected during a private autopsy and sent to the CDC for specialized testing have also come back negative, the state medical examiner's office confirmed. He did not have COVID-19, Irvin's stepfather says, um, speaking to news outlets. Well, it's unclear if or when the Oregon Health Authority will update its fatality count to remove Irvin from the list of what is now 532 coronavirus deaths. The agency didn't respond to written questions on Tuesday from local media. Learning for the second time that Irvin did not test positive for coronavirus has been difficult for the family, which hoped the CDC test results would bring closure about his death. It also raises questions about the credibility of others who have been linked to COVID-19 that may or may not have actually had it or um, whether it was a contributing factor or just a factor uh, that did not lead ultimately to an individual's death. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to hear a classic interview with Tilly Dillahay, author of Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy. That's coming up for the next two segments of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Wall Street Journal reports that crime has skyrocketed this summer in the Portland area compared to last homicides have tripled shootings have injured 159 people this year that's up from 88 last year and this happened after the city cut its police uh, uh, budget by around 15 million dollars meanwhile this was a rather interesting story from earlier in the week henry kiram had um, ducked out of his southeast portland apartment to search his car for a missing bank card when a strange man rushed into his ground floor unit closed the door and locked it well, Kiram's 12-year-old son was still inside. He fumbled for his house keys. Thankfully, he had it on the same ring as his car keys and raced to open the apartment door. He said he was scared, as any of us would be. The next 10 minutes unfolded in a blur. Uh, the stranger grabbed a kitchen knife. Kiram's petrified son managed to dart out of the apartment. Kiram followed and started yelling for neighbors to, to help. When the man eventually fled, several residents gave chase and cornered him nearby. It took police more than 90 minutes to arrive. Just before an officer finally appeared, the suspect ran off, 
more than a half dozen calls had come on the uh, 911 over the course of this bizarre ordeal, but that apparently didn't speed the response. The wait confounded and angered the father and his neighbors. They wondered what it would take for police to respond if not an armed man placing a child in jeopardy. Every neighbor here was expecting the police to come. We called about a million times, emphasis added, and the police would not show up. Well, police conceded the delay was unacceptable. They repeated what they had said to um, address previous criticism for holding back or recent slow response times. Their ranks are strapped by record retirements, covering months of social justice protests and other constraints. This is not the service our community expects, nor is it what we want to provide said one deputy police chief, Chris Davis. That's what happens when you defund the police. In Minneapolis, they're asking where are the police there after they too defunded the police. Law enforcement officers wait outside um, one particular incident just two months after voting to defund the police in Minneapolis in the wake of George Floyd's death. The city council is asking why there is an increase in crime and a lack of police response. Residents are asking, where are the police? One council member said during a city council meeting on police reform, that is the only public safety option they have at the moment. Um, they rely on MPD and uh, they are saying they are nowhere to be seen. Well, according to the police chief, 100 police officers have taken a leave of absence or left the Minneapolis Police Department since January. That's double the number of officers who typically leave the department, according to local uh, media. NPR, that's M in Minneapolis, reported an increase in violent crimes like assault, robbery, homicides compared to last year, according to their crime data. Property crimes have also increased. Arson is up 55 percent. The city council president, a leading advocate for overhauling the police department, suggested police officers were being defiant. She said it was not new, but it is very concerning in the current context. Constituents say officers on the street have admitted that they're purposely not arresting people who are committing crimes. Uh, And the uh, city council uh, chair said that uh, he would address the concerns with the department supervisors. But this is what happens when the police are not supported by local leaders When defunding the police is the uh, call of the day, you can't have it both ways. Just two interesting examples. Well, few have latched uh, onto the energy of protests more than, I think her name is Lana Roan, who's been on the front lines dozens of times. She refers to herself as an everyday anti-fascist and declares, I am Antifa. Well, Portland voters are pretty fed up with Mayor Ted Wheeler, but are they ready for Sarah Iannarone? A little more than four years ago, she, an unknown Portland State University bureaucrat, launched a long-shot bid for mayor, preaching the value of sustainability, smarter transportation, land use policies. She finished third behind Ted Wheeler and former Multnomah County Commissioner Jules Bailey. This year, she's back and running a far more aggressive campaign, pounding Wheeler and the Portland Police Bureau on social media. She uses um, expletives, but she says um, she's tired of watching reporters, medics, legal observers, peaceful protesters, and yes, vandals getting targeted, arrested, and assaulted by Portland police. Uh, She uses more language um, and uh, then invokes the name of Mayor Wheeler, ending it with, seriously? Question mark at the end. Well, in this season of COVID-19 economic devastation and fire, it's protests that has uh, come to define Portland in the eyes of most of the nation. And it's also come to define this uh, campaign. Few have latched on to the energy of protests more than her. She's been on the front lines dozens of times. A neighborhood activist, policy wonk and longtime student of what makes cities succeed. She hopes to defeat Wheeler. 
who in turn hopes to become the city's first two-term mayor since the late Vera Katz. Buoyed by his aggressive response to COVID-19, Wheeler, the current mayor, nearly won re-election outright in the May primary, getting 49% of the vote. But his opponent, Iannarone, finished second in a 19-candidate field with 24%. Less than a week later, on the 25th of May, Minneapolis police killed George Floyd, and that changed everything. Well, after three straight months of protests, some civil rights leaders have asked Wheeler to resign because his police are too aggressive. At the same time, business people have criticized him for not keeping downtown orderly. The beneficiary of those conflicting views is his opponent, whose chance of victory has risen as Wheeler's popularity has plummeted. A recent poll showed two-thirds of voters disapprove of Wheeler's performance. This race is a toss-up, says Felisa Hagens, a political director of Service Employees International Union Local 49, whose members endorsed Wheeler. The Portlanders are fed up with Wheeler. Ayanna Roan has a simple pitch for them. She hated Ted before it was cool. She's relentlessly opposed him for four years, and she offers Portland a clean break from the string of white men who have run the city since Katz left office 15 years ago, as if his being a white male explains everything. She says the city deserves better than Ted Wheeler, um, yet she's still unknown to many Portlanders. Some things you may not know about her. She's an outsider without a typical resume. Um, uh, She is seeking the top job in Portland, having never served in any elected office or worked in city government. She's instead an e-bike riding mom from upstate New York who loves to sew, rummage through thrift stores, stroll with her rescue mutt, and engage in protests. She bounced around during her early years, a bit of college and culinary arts program and others. Um, While her daughter was a toddler, she returned to college at Portland State, graduating in 2005, the same year her husband uh, opened um, Arlita Library Cafe. She's an outsider. She's beaten an incumbent Portland mayor before. It's been 36 years since she had no previous political experience um, beating an incumbent in in, uh, Portland City mayor. For instance, Bud Clark, owner of the Goose Hollow Inn, stunned Mayor Frank Ivancy in 84 doing just that. Well, this candidate, Wheeler's rival, may not have any political experience, but she has a lot of ideas. In 2006, she uh, began pursuing a Ph.D. in urban studies. Uh, The founder of one research firm who now heads the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center advised her on research techniques for her graduate work, saying she's smart and very passionate about issues. She can be laser focused and she's a hard worker. In 2008, she co-founded a new nonprofit at PSU called First Stop Portland. It provides tours of the city for foreign delegations curious about Portland's approaches to architecture, land use and so on. Uh, her boss at first stop was Nancy Hales, wife of Portland's then mayor, Charlie Hales. Beyond her own, she credits her time at PSU with giving her an immersion in smart cities and kind policies uh, that would fuel her first mayoral campaign. Her top priority is ensuring Portland is carbon neutral by 2030. I'm going to hold on to your pocketbook. If you don't aim for things, you won't accomplish them, she says. Um, She can uh, take credit for a signature accomplishment, the Arlita Triangle. She decided to help clean up her southeast Portland uh, neighborhood, which is bounded on the north by Foster Road, west by 60th and east by 82nd. 
She and other volunteers set out to revive a trash-strewn triangle-shaped Portland Bureau of Transportation property. Apparently, they were quite successful. She's less than transparent about her academic credentials, according to those who follow such things. Her characterization of her academic bona fides is a recurring issue. In the 2016 voter pamphlet, she described her educational background as Ph.D. with a small c, standing for candidate. Her communication is unfiltered. Um, I couldn't quote some of what she had to say about Ted Wheeler for that very reason, but that is the uh, the candidate. She says that she is, uh, despite Wheeler's unpopularity, she has struggled to win over key allies. She says she is a, an anti-fascist, uh, and not just a an anti-fascist. She is anti-fascism, and some suggest she's much further to the left than Ted Wheeler himself. The question being posed is, uh, with Portland voters fed up with Ted Wheeler, and there's only one other name on the ballot, are they ready for Sarah? I get her name right. I've never actually heard it said. Uh, Ian Arone, two choices in Portland, pretty much the same uh, ticket, only one a little further to the left, and radical by our own self-definition than the other. Coming up, we're going to hear a classic interview with Tilly Dillahay, Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest, well, she looks right into the heart of her readers. That included me. You know that feeling, she points out. That heart sting when someone else receives the very thing you desire. When your best friend announces her engagement. When your sister says she's pregnant and you've been trying. When your coworker gets a promotion. You tell yourself you're happy for her, you're happy for him, but you feel a hint of something else. That something is very likely envy. Well, in her newest book, In Seeing Green, she shares her own struggles with envy, with honesty and transparency, something few of us are usually willing to do. But she doesn't just leave her readers there. She examines seven common sources of envy, and she offers us practical steps for addressing the envy in our own lives, whether or not we're really open to admitting it. Well, Tilly Dillahay holds a degree in journalism from Lipscomb University. She's been the editor of a weekly newspaper and lifestyle magazine and now serves as homemaker and mother of two little girls. She writes at uh, justinandtilly.com. And she contributes to the Gospel Coalition. She is the host of the Green Workshop, an event for women on the subject of envy held in local churches. Her husband, Justin, is a pastor in a small town east of uh, Nashville, or yeah, east of Nashville. And she joins us today to talk about her latest book, a subject we don't want to talk about, but we're going to because it's good for us. Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy. Tilly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Well, this is a difficult subject, but I want to thank you in advance for bringing it up and helping us to really be honest with ourselves about this uh, this thing that many of us struggle with but uh, refuse to name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in this book, you share your own story, as I mentioned a few moments ago, your own struggle with envy. Share that story with us because it's close to home for you in that it involves your, your sisters, your first playmates, as you describe them. But it may also resonate with many of us as well. Absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah, so the the subject of this book is very deeply personal to me. Um, and it, it all began really with the relationship that I have with my sisters. I'm, I'm one of seven siblings, but five of us are girls. And we were raised in and around the music business in Nashville. Um, so when I was a teenager, I, my 
my uh, dream was to be a, a jazz singer, actually. I wanted to be sort of the female Michael Buble. And my dad helped me to, to record a, a CD of jazz cover tunes when I was about 15. And then I went off to college and really didn't pursue music. I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of work ethic when it came to pursuing music, and I didn't really know what to do. Um, so I just kind of, kind of got into my studies and let it, let it fall. And a few years into that, into my college years, the two sisters that are just below me, they were teenagers at the time, and they, they began writing and recording on a little eight-track recorder in the secrecy of their rooms, in the privacy of their, just between each other. None of us had ever heard what they were doing. And one day they decided to sort of debut this music that they've been working on. So they did a, a um, just a little gig in a coffee shop, and we all went to see them. And I will never forget the experience of sitting there in the dark in the back of that room when they stepped behind the mic and strapped on those instruments and <clears throat> opened their mouths and just this this magical folk um, harmony, harmony and the original music that they were, they had written, which was still a little bit bumpy but just very rich with potential, you know, and um, the beauty of what they were making just moved us all. We all just sort of stopped what we were doing and listened because it was so good. And... I just remember sitting in the back of that room with tears running down my cheeks. And I know that part of the emotion I was feeling was the the natural emotion that you feel when you hear good music. But I think a big slice of what I was feeling that night um, and for many nights afterwards was pain and just, just deep pain that this glory had arisen sort of beside me but it wasn't mine. Um, it wasn't me that had done this and had worked on their craft and, um, and was making this beautiful thing. So for years after that, they, they continued to work hard and get better and better. And they went on the road, they recorded, they started a band with a couple of brothers. And, um, I just, every, every time I had to hear them, it, it got, I think more painful and every time they put out a new CD, I would get it, listen to it one time, and then stick it in a drawer uh, where I didn't have to see it again. I found that I wasn't able to interact with them naturally or talk to them naturally about the music, so I just kind of avoided the subject and didn't didn't really talk about it with other people either. And no one, um, no one would have known that I was envying my sisters. I never spoke of it to, even to myself. Uh, so it was many years later, after our relationship had been strained and um, really just estranged, I guess. There mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of of, uh, of tension between us. There was just strangerhood that, that arose. And we had been very close when, when we were young. Um, so after years of this, it was, it was later on, I was converted. And we were all getting married in the same year. We actually all three got married within one year. And when when we were getting ready to stand up at each other's weddings, I just, there was something about being in that situation of trying to represent them as a bridesmaid in their weddings and realizing I didn't even know them anymore. Um, Sort of flipped a switch for me and made me go home and say, it's time for me to figure out what this is. Like what, what is going on here? And the word envy or the, the concept of envy really entered my awareness about that time. So 
Mm. You write that envy is the first sin that Paul lists in Romans one twenty eight. It is one of the most mm-hmm. under-confessed sins in the Christian church. It's a universal feeling. It's the worst kept secret on the planet. Uh, it turns friends into enemies. And you talk about what envy is, what it isn't, why it doesn't often get talked about, and how each of us is affected by it. This is a serious thing, but often goes unacknowledged or given voice mm-hmm. so that it can be confronted. Yes. Why do you think we are so reluctant to identify this natural human response that is akin to jealousy uh, and hold on to it, which can be destructive, not for the people we envy, but for us. Yeah, I think that really what makes it so difficult to confess the sin of envy is that um, it's one of these sins that really has nothing endearing or cute at all about it. Um, And in order to confess envy, you have to acknowledge to somebody that, that this person you're already envying um, you feel them to be better than you are in some area of life that you particularly value. Um, so in order to confess the envy, you have to acknowledge that thing, which is already very painful, something you don't want to admit, um, that you think they're better than you are. And then you have to tell them, and because of that, I, I wish that you would fail. Or I'm, you know, I, I, I wished essentially harm on you. I hated you in my heart. And um, there's just no way to make that... Um, there's no way to soften the way that sounds Mm -hmm. because it it is just, it's an ugly sin. Mm. Well, let's refine its meaning just a bit. How do you distinguish between envy, jealousy, or covetousness? And is it important to make that distinction? Yeah, I think it's important. Um, I do think envy and and jealousy are often used interchangeably, and I don't think that it's it's that big of a deal, but um, it's important to understand at least that jealousy is sometimes attributed to God and is sometimes can be a righteous emotion. Jealousy has to do with feeling threatened uh, over something that actually does belong to you, something that is yours. Um, and it's often a relational feeling, like you could protect your marriage and feel a rightful jealousy over your husband. Um, and that, that doesn't have to be a simple thing necessarily. God is said to be jealous for his people. Um, But envy is always fixated on something that belongs to somebody else, and it is, um, it's resentful, and and, uh, it it hates the fact that God has given something to someone else and and not to you. Mm -hmm. That's also, I think, what what, um, distinguishes envy from covetousness. Covetousness looks at something that belongs to someone else and maybe just wants it. Um, Envy takes it personally that the other person has it. Envy would almost be as happy to see it taken away from the other person as uh, to be enjoying it oneself. So it's very, it's a stingy, stingy feeling. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book titled Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy, and it can certainly rob you of it, drain you of of joy. Tilly uh, Dillahay is my guest, and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Tilly Dillahay. She's the author of Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy. Tilly holds a degree in journalism from Lipscomb University. She has been the editor of a weekly newspaper and lifestyle magazine and now serves as a homemaker and mom of two little girls. She writes uh, at justinandtilly.com and contributes to the Gospel Coalition. She's the host of the Green Workshop, an event for women on the subject of envy held in local churches. She and her husband husband, I should say, Tilly's husband is pastor in a small town east of Nashville. And we're talking about the subject of envy, which is a difficult subject to discuss. But you link that inexorably to our understanding of glory and what you call borrowed glory. Can you explain why glory is an important element of dealing with envy? Yes. Um, so when I when I had diagnosed this issue that I have with my sisters where I had been envying them for years and years for their musical talent. Um, one of the things that helped me early on was reading this essay by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And that, that essay is not about envy at all, but it's about this glory that we have an appetite for and the way that it this appetite for glory shows up in all these other appetites that we have, um, feelings like nostalgia, um, the desire to be praised by a superior, um, the desire to be um, to enter the inner ring and be intimate with certain people. And I started to look around me and just notice that glory motivates so much of um, of what we do and and what we pursue. And I started to see glory in other people that God had given them glories like like musical talent, what my sisters had. Um, like intelligence, like uh, physical beauty, like charm, um, and even like the relationships that God has placed in our lives. And I, I started to see these as gifts from God, but gifts that are that reflect Him and gifts that are so powerful that we respond to them when we encounter them. We respond either um, by worshiping God for them or worshiping the person who has them, or we sometimes respond by hating and resenting those glories, um, and that hatred and resentment, that is envy. Uh, so just using that that framework of glory and, and recognizing these borrowed glories in other people was the first step for me in understanding why envy was so painful and why it seemed to really strike at the heart of, of some of my deepest desires. Mm. You address seven specific kinds of envy. What are they? And explain a little bit of the trait of each. Yeah, so that is just um, ways of kind of kind of searching your life and looking for where the envy might be. And the seven kinds of envy are really seven kinds of glory that you might value and that you might see in other people in envy. So um, one of them is the glory of the body, so maybe physical health or physical beauty or athletic talent, um, pretty straightforward. One of them was money. I call it um, the envy of options because that's really what money gets for us is the options to the option to, to do something we love or to live a certain way. Um, there, there's the envy of charm, so the envy of, of that magnetic personality that attracts other people, um, the envy of intellect, Something that may matter more during our school years, but sometimes it follows us into our into our careers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also a big a big thing for men. They might be more aware of of intelligence than other men. Um, 
the envy of control and competence. You know, that person who you look at their life and it just seems like they can pull it all together and do it all and, and look make it look easy. And uh, that can be hard uh, to look at, especially if you feel like you're kind of limping more than more than uh, handling everything. So um, another would be creative talent. So this is like my sisters with the music or with writing or with, with uh, visual art. Artists are very prone to envy because I think because the glory of art is so powerful. Um, it's, it's telling a story, and you're either telling a true story or a false one, but stories are very powerful. Um, so art, art is something... And I think many of us are prone to envy. And uh, the final one, the seventh, is the glory of relationship. When you when you uh, witness someone in close, intimate relationship with someone else, whether it's a, a spouse or a child or a parent or um, good friends, and when you see that you're outside of that relationship, uh, it can be very hard to witness that glory and not to resent it. Um, so those are the, the seven that mm-hmm. I discuss in the book. How do you identify which kind of envy that you might be struggling with in order to address it more specifically? I think one of the great ways of looking for envy in your life is just to ask yourself, um, what are those traits, what are your own traits that you kind of lead with when you meet someone new or when you're summarizing who you are to somebody um, there's always that thing or that couple of things that you sort of want people to know about you. You're the one who um, is a writer or you're you're the one who makes the great cakes or has the great kids. or um, That's sort of the area I think that maybe is your primary glory or that you see as your primary glory. And then ask yourself, what is it that you do when you meet someone who has more of that glory than you have? Um, because that's when it gets hard. Mm-hmm. Um how do you help the reader identify and work through the envy in their life? What do you do once you've identified this is an area that I really am um, experiencing envy in? What do I do next? Yeah, so I talk, uh, I spend a full chapter yes. on just practical um, virtues to put on as we put off the sin of envy. Um, and the first of those is, is love. So love, we know from First Corinthians 13, love does not envy. Um, the two just don't coexist well. So if you have identified someone in your life that you're envying, there are, there are ways that you can practice love towards them, sort of fake it until you, until you make it in your heart. <laughs> um, one of the ways I talk about is, is um, gazing at the glory and not turning your head away the way that, that you might be tempted to, uh, praying for their success in whatever area, whatever it is that's you know, bothering your flesh, pray that they would continue to to succeed and that God would even grant them um, more success in that area. Pray for, um, I guess, just praying for their, their good as a whole person, spiritual as well as, as um, material, and um, praising them to their faith. That's, that's something that you may get out of, out of the habit of doing if you've been secretly envious for a long time. So it's very hard to um, look at glory and enjoy it and praise it and also resent it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I also talk about confession of envy, you know, when to confess, when not to confess. Um, some of that will depend, I think mainly that depends on the closeness of the relationship. Is it a relationship that has been 
where you had intimacy and you lost intimacy because of your envy, and they know they've noticed most likely that something has changed between you. They may not know what it is. Um, I think in those cases, often the only way to move forward in that relationship is to go to them and, and tell them what's been going on, which is a very difficult conversation. But I've had it, I've had it several times now mm-hmm. and, uh, with different people, mm-hmm. and I have to say, I've I've never once confessed envy to anyone and had them meet me with anything less than open, just readiness, just total readiness to restore that relationship and um, and meet me halfway. Yeah, and so, move forward. Well, let, let me just ask you, yeah. as our time is running out, um, mm-hmm. when you have uh, gone, for, for example, your sisters, which is a very close relationship, and you confess to them yes. um, that you were struggling with envy, how did that, how did they respond, and how did that impact your relationship moving forward? They responded very graciously. I mean, they, they, um, they did know that something had changed. I think usually they do. I mm-hmm. think usually the person knows. Even if you think you've, you've hit it so, so well, <laughs> you can't. You can't really hide it that well. Um, so they they did know something was off, but um, but they were so ready. And in the months and years after that conversation, you know, it's embarrassing because you, you start to know once you've confessed that to them, you feel like they're going to be watching my reaction now to their music or to, you know, to whatever the thing is that I was, I told them I was in being. Um, so you, I guess you feel like you're, I feel like I have to be the biggest fan they have, <laughs> which in some ways is great for me. You know, it's, it's really good exercise. But um, I mean, since then, just we've, we're, we're all raising kids at the same time. Now the, the Lord is just, has made us friends again, and it all started with with that conversation. With that so. very difficult conversation. That very difficult, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, the book, once again, is titled Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy, and What Freedom There Is in um, Getting Free of This uh, Very Challenging Sin. Tilly, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Appreciate it very much. By the way, the book is published by Harvest House. And again, Seeing Green, Don't Let Envy Color Your Joy, available in bookstores right now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. You should probably know that. Well, top Democrats in the Oregon legislature, which is going to meet sometime next week, well, meet in the current vernacular, they're mulling whether to file a lawsuit challenging a series of vetoes by Governor Kate Brown. Senator, um, uh, Senate President Peter Courtney confirmed that he and House Speaker Tina Kotek have talked a lot about whether or not to ask a court to weigh in on the vetoes. They have until the 20th of October to make that decision. Courtney says that like all disagreements and fights, there's a time and there's a place. I'm not sure if getting in a fight like this right now is what we should do. Well, Brown last week announced she'd be using her line item veto authority to slash portions of two bills lawmakers passed in an August special legislative session. The governor's substantive changes impacted part of that session's central budget bill and are clearly legal. But an array of legislative officials, including the legislature's top attorney, say that Brown ventured into potentially illegal territory when she vetoed parts of another bill. The situation creates a pretty tricky situation for Courtney and Kotek, who have to decide whether an inter-party fight is worthwhile at a time Oregon is facing stark challenges on an ever-growing number of fronts. 
Courtney, who's a staunch defender of the legislative branch, was clearly feeling conflicted, saying, I'm deeply bothered philosophically in terms of how I view the legislative body. Uh, But later in the interview, he argued that another political battle would not be in the state's best interest as it responds to a flagging economy, pandemic and its worst ever wildfire season. We'll continue to follow that story to determine what decision they ultimately made. Well, in other news, Representative Jim Jordan has submitted a resolution to Congress late uh, yesterday seeking to prevent any party from packing the Supreme Court and calling for a limit to nine justices. Any attempt to increase the number of justices to the Supreme Court of the United States or pack the court would undermine our democratic institutions and destroy the credibility of our nation's highest court, Jordan wrote. Well, the resolution comes with the partisan fighting in Washington, imagine that, following the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last week. Meanwhile, President Trump wrote on Twitter that he will announce his nominee to to succeed Ginsburg on Saturday, a move the Democrats have called unjust based on Senate Republicans' claims in 2016 that a Supreme Court justice should not be replaced during an election year. Democrats can't win elections. The Republican-controlled Senate, we control the White House, Jordan said in an interview uh, Tuesday night, the Senate's going to move forward with that nomination, just like the Constitution says. In other news, GOP uh, senators uh, are pushing to confirm the SCOTUS uh, pick by the end of October. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in the meantime, is lying in repose at the U.S. Supreme Court this week. Sarah Sanders blasted the Democrats who viciously attacked Judge Barrett Coney, uh, Coney Barrett, rather, while lecturing about empowering women. And uh, Democrats are showing they're no longer a party of the JFK uh, president by targeting Amy Coney Barrett's Catholicism. Laura Ingram makes the point. Senator Mike Lee says, I hope and expect Amy Coney Barrett will be Trump's SCOTUS nominee. We won't know that until Saturday when the announcement is made. Meanwhile, Cindy McCain, the widow of U.S. Senator John McCain, announced on Twitter late Tuesday that she is endorsing Democrat Joe Biden in his 2020 presidential campaign against President Trump. No real surprise there, given the the conflict between the families. My husband, John, lived by a code, country first. We are Republicans, yes, but Americans foremost. There's only one candidate in this race who stands up for our values as a nation, and that is Joe Biden, she tweeted. Well, Biden accepted her endorsement, saying, I'm deeply honored to have your support and your friendship. This election is bigger than any one political party. It requires all of us to come together as one America to restore the soul of the nation. Don't you wish that politics could restore the soul of anything or anyone. The truth is it can't. Uh, Nonetheless, that uh, was the statement. Biden said Tuesday that McCain decided to endorse him following President Trump's alleged remarks about U.S. service members, as reported by The Atlantic. That has since been disputed, but it has stood for many. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'm about to go on one of those Zooms with John McCain's wife, who is first time ever, is endorsing me because of what he talks about with my son and John's, um, who are heroes, Uh, who served their country. You know, he said they're losers, they're suckers, Biden said during a fundraising dinner. Well, the Associated Press um, mocked, uh, as being mocked rather, for calling Cindy McCain's Biden endorsement a stunning rebuke of Trump. Meghan McCain says the media is the enemy of Republicans and uh, Cindy McCain praising Biden is in conflict apparently with her daughter. In other news, Seattle's city council voted 7-2 to two on Tuesday evening to override mayor, uh, the mayor, Jenny Durkin's veto of a bill that would cut police funding by around $3 million. 
We cannot look away from this and we can no longer accept the status quo if we truly believe that black lives matter, Council President Lorena Gonzalez said, according to MyNorthwest.com. Well, the bill also would remove as many as 100 officers from various police units and limit staff's pay to $150,000. The council said the bill was a down payment toward its effort to ultimately defend or rather defund the department by 50 percent, which would likely happen next year. Council members um, cast the dissenting votes, Deborah Juarez and Alex Peterson. The council had approved the cuts by a seven to one vote in August. The move prompted police chief Cameron Best to retire, effective September 2nd, claiming the planned cuts had placed her in a position destined to fail. Well, who are the left wing groups protesting outside the homes of GOP lawmakers? Well, that's a good question. There's a list that's currently being published. And Louisville police, they're declaring a state of emergency. They set up barricades, blocked traffic ahead of the anticipated Breonna Taylor announcement, which was made earlier today. Mayor Giuliani has blasted de Blasio as a danger to New York City residents. People die as a result of his incompetence, he says. Meanwhile, CNN's Don Lemon has uh, backtracked his call to blow up the entire system. He says he was taken out of context. Uh, Tessa Majors, uh, murder suspect, has confessed to uh, her father who had been jailed and a recorded line. She apparently hasn't watched television to know those recordings are being made. Kaylee McEnany has scolded CNN's Jim Acosta over the uh, over his question with the Trump coronavirus uh, response. This is a back and forth with this administration now with this uh, a White House press secretary. And Colby Covington says LeBron James couldn't last 10 seconds with me after the NBA player um, jumped to the star's defense. Well, the House has approved a spending bill in an effort to avoid a government shutdown during the pandemic. And more Americans are concerned about paying their bills on time than at any point since this whole thing started. Uh, U.S. airlines are making an urgent call for a new bailout as uh, job cuts are looming in their industry. Well, they're expecting the media to begin an attack on faith of the Supreme Court candidate. Two of them are Catholics. At least one is an evangelical. First Newsweek, which was uh, forced to issue a correction, claimed a group uh, Amy Coney, uh, Coney Barrett is associated with was the inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale. That was false. Then Reuters attacked Cohen's religious community as being similar to the totalitarian male-dominated society of Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, as well. They later rewrote the story. Uh, Denny Burke points out straight up religious bigotry pretending to be a news report. Badly done. Alexandra DeSantis says this is an excellent example of journalism setting out with their anti-Catholic conclusion already lined up and then filling the article with cherry picked comments and claims to try to make it true. Tim Carney points out that these people know they shouldn't do it, but they cannot help themselves. Ben Sass points out that these ugly smears against Judge Barrett are a combination of anti-Catholic bigotry and QAnon-level stupidity. Stupidity. People of Praise is basically a Bible study, and just like billions of Christians around the world, Judge Barrett reads the Bible, prays, and tries to serve her community. Senators should condemn this wacky McCarthyism. Guy Benson points out, any, um, I'm told uh, that at least two more major news organizations are working on stories about Barrett's religious beliefs. And um, one other uh, columnist explains why he believes Barrett is the best pick based on her credentials. Judge Amy Coney Barrett at Hillsize College can be found uh, discussing uh, her role. Meanwhile, uh, 
candidate Biden is continuing to avoid questions about the Supreme Court. Uh, Andrew McCarthy pointed out that Biden answered very few questions, and it's imperative he does uh, as his party is planning on expanding and packing the Supreme Court would be a direct result of this and a radical one. But it is only one of a plethora of radical steps that would follow expanding and packing the lower federal courts statewide for statehood, rather, for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, single payer health care elements of the Green New Deal, a massive bailout of for mismanaged blue states, breaking up and regulating into submission private businesses, hamstringing the nation's police forces, gutting the Second Amendment, sweeping immigration amnesty, and so on and so on, just to name a few. Listening to The Georgine Rice Show, quick break, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, we were talking about the uh, former vice president and his uh, unwillingness to respond to questions about the Supreme Court and whether or not he would be willing to pack the court, as they say. From another story, legislation expanding the Supreme Court would need Mr. Biden's signature if he is elected president. And he was asked Monday by a Wisconsin news station whether he was open to it. His answer is a legitimate question. Okay, but let me tell you why I'm not going to answer that question, because it will shift the whole focus. That's what Trump wants. Well, no, that's what the American people want to know, given the current situation. Well, this is a calculated political dodge, and moderator Chris Wallace shouldn't let Mr. Biden get away with it in the next week um, presidential debate. Would he veto court packing legislation? Well, we'll see what happens. By the way, that's covered in the Wall Street Journal. Meanwhile, Chuck Schumer has invoked the Senate rule to slow the progress of uh, the confirmation of a new Supreme Court uh, Justice uh, Senator Chuck Schumer invoked the two hour rule, claiming we in, uh, invoked the two hour rule because we can't have business as usual when Republicans are destroying the institution as they have done. End quote. Meanwhile, Charles Cook explains the idea that the Democratic Party is going to pack the court is ridiculous. Whom exactly do we imagine is going to vote for this? Joe Manchin, who voted to confirm Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, John Tester, Kristen Sinema. Uh, any meaningful Democratic Senate majority would be built atop victories in Arizona, Iowa, North Carolina. Are these swing staters really going to line up behind this nuclear option during the first year of their new jobs? He asks, well, it's a rhetorical question. Turns out what Schumer is upset about is a complete farce. McConnell is perfectly consistent in 2016 and 2020. I hope you had the opportunity to hear his comments yesterday explaining what may uh, appear to be hypocrisy, but he believes to be a matter of principle. China is expanding its forced labor program into Tibet. Beijing has set quotas for the mass transfer of rural laborers within Tibet and to other parts of China, according to over 100 state media reports, policy documents from government bureaus uh, uh, and uh, in Tibet, and procurement requests released between 2016 and 2020 and reviewed by Reuters. The quota effort marks a rapid expansion of an initiative designed to provide loyal workers for Chinese industry. The Wall Street Journal notes that Beijing bans foreign reporters from Tibet. Other foreigners can enter only on a tour sanctioned by the government. Until Beijing opens up, and that's not likely to happen, the world is justified in concluding it has something to hide. Well, in other news, public schools across the country are promoting Black Lives Matter and organizing protests. Seattle's woke city council has overridden the mayor's veto of police cuts. And Florida advocates or advocates rather rally uh, to raise money to pay their legal obligations in order to register felons to vote. 
in this particular election. Iran says it's ready to swap all prisoners with the U.S., and an election watchdog group has found 350,000 dead registrants on the voter rolls in 42 states. Defund the police activist Elisa Milano has sparked a massive police presence after calling 911. Apparently, she doesn't want them to be defunded to the point where she can't have access. And Tucker Carlson aired a never-before-seen bit of footage from the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting in Kenosha. It was eye-opening. The Daily Signal has more. On this day in history, 1806, the Lewis and Clark expedition returns to St. Louis more than two years after setting out for the Pacific Northwest. 1846, Neptune is identified as a planet by German astronomer Johann Gottfried Gall. 1889, Nintendo is founded uh, in Kyoto, Japan, as a playing card company, or rather, by a playing card company. 1952, Senator Richard Nixon, Republican out of California at the time, salvages his vice presidential nomination by appearing on television from Los Angeles to refute allegations of improper campaign fundraising in what became known as the Checkers speech. 1957, on this day in history, nine black students who entered Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas are forced to withdraw because of a white mob outside. Finally, on this day of history, in history, 1987, Senator Joe Biden withdraws from the Democratic presidential race following questions about his use of borrowed quotations and a portrayal of his academic record. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's casket arrived at the Supreme Court building Wednesday morning and was greeted by former law clerks, uh, clerks rather, who lined the front steps as honorary pallbearers as thousands are expected to pay their respects to the liberal icon this week. The remaining justices awaited her arrival in the Supreme Court's Great Hall, where a ceremony took place and Ginsburg's casket rests on the Lincoln... um, Well, I can't even pronounce the word, so I won't pretend. The platform that uh, held the casket of President Abraham Lincoln. Those in attendance wore face masks, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor wore a face shield. A ceremony was led by Rabbi Lauren Holtblatt, co-senior rabbi, Uh, of a congregation in Washington, D.C. Holzblatt's husband, Ari Holzblatt, clerked for Ginsburg in 2014. Rabbi Holzblatt spoke at the ceremony, followed by Chief Justice John Roberts. Roberts recalled how Ginsburg, uh, who uh, would speak of her journey to the nation's highest court from humble beginnings, Ruth used to ask, what is the difference between a bookkeeper in Brooklyn and a Supreme Court justice? Roberts said the answer, one generation. Roberts then led the attendees in a moment of silence before the ceremony concluded. Well, following the ceremony, Ginsburg will be moved from the Great Hall to the portico at the top of the front steps of the building where she will lie in repose. The public will be able to pay their respects until 10 p.m. Wednesday and then Thursday, 8.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. President Trump will reportedly pay his respects on Thursday. Well, Air Force Two safety uh, rather safely returned to an airport in Manchester, New Hampshire, with Vice President Pence after it hit a bird upon takeoff. The vice president's office confirmed, according to a pool report, Pence and his staff are taking a cargo plane back to Washington. A senior administration official who wasn't authorized to address the matter publicly and spoke on condition of anonymity said the vice president and his entourage were in no danger. The vice president was campaigning in the northeastern state, which uh, Trump just barely lost to former Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton in 2016. While campaigning last that year, Pence plane slid off the runway at New York's LaGuardia Airport. You might want to consider taking a bus next time.
Well, the House easily passed a temporary government-wide funding bill Tuesday evening in a bipartisan effort to keep the government running through the beginning of December. I like the sound of that, in a bipartisan effort. You can speak to your grandchildren about that. I remember when Congress used to be able to do something in a bipartisan effort. Well, the House voted 359 to 57 to approve the stopgap measure that will keep the government open through the 11th of December. 56 Republicans and Representative Justin Amash, an independent from Michigan, voted against the measure, while Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rather voted present. Agreement on the bill came after considerable behind-the-scenes battling over proposed add-ons. The final agreement gives the administration continued immediate authority to dole out agriculture department subsidies in the run-up to Election Day. House Speaker Pelosi, she retreated from an initial draft that sparked a furor with Republicans and farm state Democrats. Instead, in talks on Tuesday, she restored a farm aid funding patch sought by the administration, which has sparked the ire of Democrats, who said it plays political favorites as it gives out bailout money to farmers and ranchers. In return... Pelosi won COVID-related food aid for the poor, including a higher food benefit for families whose children are unable to receive free or reduced lunches because schools are closed over the coronavirus. Another add-on would permit states to remove hurdles to food stamps and nutrition aid to low-income mothers that are more difficult to clear during the pandemic. The deal permitted the measure to speed through the House after a swift debate that should ensure smooth sailing in the GOP-held Senate before next Wednesday's deadline. There's no appetite on either side for a government shutdown, but that's precisely what would happen in the absence of a stopgap bill. Well, as I mentioned earlier, a grand jury indicted one officer in the death of Louisville, Kentucky resident Breonna Taylor, a nurse who was shot to death in a botched police raid in March. Officer Brett Hankinson was charged with three counts of wanton endangerment and faces a possible one to five years in prison for each count. Hankinson was one of three officers who fired their weapons during the raid on on Taylor's apartment, ostensibly as part of a drug bust. Her boyfriend thought the police were intruders and fired his licensed handgun at them, and Taylor was killed in the crossfire. No drugs were found at the apartment. The other two officers were fi- who fired their weapons, Miles Cosgrove and John Mattingly, uh, will not be charged. Mattingly was shot during the raid and on Tuesday sent a letter to colleagues saying that they did the legal, moral and ethical thing that night when they opened fire. The grand jury apparently agreed. Louisville's mayor, Greg Fisher, declared a curfew beginning at 9 p.m. on Wednesday evening in anticipation of demonstrations following that indictment. Those demonstrations began immediately following the announcement this afternoon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court vacancy created by the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has focused attention on a rather obscure but very important process within our system of government. How does such a job opening get filled? Well, first, there's no manual. There's no rule book or set of instructions. The Constitution, in fact, has very little to say about it. It gives the power to make nominations to the president and the power of advice and consent to the Senate. And the Constitution allows the Senate to determine its own rules for doing the business. Well, that's the extent of it. The Constitution doesn't tell either the president or the Senate how to fill their responsibilities when it comes to appointing judges. Also, every vacancy and every nomination is unique. Justices sometimes announce months in advance that they will step aside on a specific date. 
Others say they won't leave until their successor is finally confirmed. Vacancies can occur suddenly, as with the unexpected death of Justice Antonin Scalia in 2016, or after a long decline in a justice's health, as in the case of uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg. Presidents can make a nomination quickly or take a long while to think about it. President George Herbert Walker Bush announced his nomination of Clarence Thomas in 91, only a few days after Justice Thurgood Marshall announced his retirement. By contrast, President Bill Clinton took more than three months to nominate Ginsburg to replace Justice Byron White in 93. The length and complexity of the uh, Senate's confirmation process also vary con- uh, considerably. The Judiciary Committee, for example, held its first hearing on a Supreme Court nomination in 1916, but confirmed at least a dozen nominees after that without a hearing at all. The committee held a hearing on eight Supreme Court nominees who did not attend, including Earl Warren in 53, Justices Stanley Reed in 38, and William Douglas in 39 attended their hearings, but said nothing and were asked no questions. While Reed's hearing lasted almost an hour, Douglas was over in just five minutes. So... Who knows how each one is going to ultimately end? Well, the entire confirmation process is something sometimes over virtually before anyone knows it's begun. The Senate confirmed James um, uh, Byrne in 1941 on the same day that President Franklin Roosevelt nominated him. Four years later, Roosevelt's nomination of Harold Burton languished longer for a single day. In 1962, the Senate confirmed White uh, without even a recorded vote, only a few hours after the Judiciary Committee held a very brief hearing. The confirmation process has taken longer in recent decades. It's become far more political since uh, Robert Bork, in part because it has become more formal and complicated, vetting by the Justice Department, background checks by the FBI, the evaluations by the American Bar Association, for example, all add to the timetable. Still, some recent confirmations have been handled with great efficacy. President Gerald Ford's nomination of John Paul Stevens in 75 took just 19 days from nomination to confirmation, and the Senate took 33 days to confirm President Ronald Reagan's 81 nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor. Ginsburg was confirmed in 1993, just six weeks after her nomination. And while the Senate would unanimously confirm Antonin Scalia in 1986, the confirmation process took 89 days because Scalia was Uh, paired with William Rehnquist, the justice that Scalia would replace and who had been nominated to be elevated to chief justice. Rehnquist uh, attracted significant controversy, and the 65-33 Senate tally was, as a percentage of Senate votes cast, the most opposition since Justice um, Pitney was confirmed in 1912. These are more than just interesting anecdotes. They demonstrate that there's no single way to appoint a Supreme Court justice. The Constitution doesn't say how to do it, and even Senate rules don't establish a specific framework. The circumstances surrounding a vacancy, the politics of the time, the existing philosophical balance of the court, and many more variables add up to the Senate handling Supreme Court nominations in at least a dozen different ways. Supporters or opponents of a particular president or of a particular nominee often argue that the confirmation process must mirror the process for this or that prior nominee. Those precedents might be interesting and perhaps even relevant, but they certainly are not binding. In every case, the Senate has to decide how best to handle a nomination when the president actually sends that nomination to the Senate. We will watch that process on Saturday when uh, the president says he will announce his pick to replace the now deceased Supreme Court justice. One of the reasons the president is suggesting it needs to be done sooner rather than later is if there is a contested election, 
there needs to be a full complement of um, members. In fact, Sotomayor back in 2016 said, we do not do well when there are only uh, eight justices. We must have nine. And while she wasn't speaking to this specific set of circumstances, the point is uh, is well taken. Well, the president he frequently suggests that election chaos could propel his favorite foil to the White House. If you don't have the election settled by the end of the year, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi would become president. Well, it's not quite the case, but a lot of things have to first spill off the rails uh, for Pelosi to head to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But election and congressional officials are starting to worry about what could unfold this fall and winter if they struggle to determine whether President Trump or Joe Biden prevails in battleground states. Well, the Constitution makes Congress the ultimate arbiter to decide which candidate wins each state. Congress has to approve certificates of election from all 50 states. But with a polarized electorate, a close presidential race, a pandemic and voting by mail, it's uh, wise to consider contingencies because we'll probably have to rely on them. And one of those contingencies includes the Speaker of the House matriculating to acting president of the United States. Well, what's the law? Now, you can have um, you may have thought November 3rd is the most important date on the election calendar. And it certainly is for those of us who are casting ballots. But a more crucial date is December 14th, one day after my mother's birthday, dictated by an obscure Byzantine 1887 law, the Electoral Count Act. Well, it's a kind of a nightmare of convoluted verbiage. That's how one Ohio State constitutional law professor puts it, Edward Foley. He says, I've studied that piece of text for years now. I wouldn't uh, be honest to say that I completely understand it. It's just impenetrable. And yet it stands. And December 14th is the day. Well, Congress passed the legislation after the disputed 1876 presidential election between President Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Electoral votes were um, far from certain in Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Oregon. There was a sprint to settle the Electoral College tally before Inauguration Day in 1877. Well, Congress created an Electoral Commission to resolve the issue, and in those days, the uh, president assumed office on March, uh, March the 4th. That, of course, is no longer the case in the 21st century. Well, the Electoral Count Act dictates that states choose electors no more than 41 days after the election. This is partly why the Supreme Court rushed to complete Bush versus Gore on December 12th in 2000. The decision halted the count of ballots in Florida, handing the presidency to George W. Bush. He just wasn't on a whim. There were actually uh, restrict, uh, restraints. The 1887 law establishes a safe harbor date so states can uh, conclude vote counts and establish electors early. But what happens if there's a, a problem with the mail? The cryptic nature of the statute could give some states the green light to continue to counting or cease counting. Already this year, we've had an unprecedented amount of litigation filed contesting the rules set up before the election. We've never seen this many lawsuits filed. One election expert um, says, I think it makes folks a little worried and a little bit leery about what might happen after the election, not to mention the outcome and whose name ends up being at the top of the national ticket, if you will. So what happens if a state sends inconsistent slates of electoral voters to Congress? Well, the new 117th Congress has to hammer all of that out in January of 2021. It's kind of a nightmare uh, considering potential hypotheticals. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin sending competing submissions of electoral votes, each claiming to be the real ones from the state. 
But can Congress sort this out? Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. It's a big question. And, of course, it will have uh, some impact on what happens, not just, again, in November when ballots are presumably cast and counted, but in the days following when actual decisions are made based on um, the outcome of that voting. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about what happens in November and the days that follow. But what about this whole President Pelosi thing? Well, time and speed are pretty key to this whole process. How fast states can count popular votes in November? Uh, Can states meet the December 14th deadline that I mentioned earlier to decide which slate of electors to send to Capitol Hill? How quickly can the House and the Senate resolve any potential electoral college controversies in January? And finally, if there is a contingent uh, election, how swiftly can the House elect a president? Well, that's why the 36-ballot, six-day marathon in McConnell's office to elect Thomas Jefferson in 1801 is important. Yeah, not Mitch, another McConnell. What happens if the House hasn't picked a president by noon Eastern time on the 20th of January? Well, that's the constitutionally mandated day and time to inaugurate a president. Well, this is where the 20th Amendment and the Presidential Succession Act kicks in and Nancy Pelosi. If the House remains stymied at noon on the 20th of January, there is neither a president nor a vice president. The terms of President Trump and Vice President Pence expire. But there is a Speaker of the House next in line to the presidency. Now, this is where Pelosi, by statute, becomes acting president, not president, but acting president, whatever that means. Well, at this stage, we would embark on the shakiest constitutional realm in American history. Pelosi, to become acting president, she has to resign from Congress and the speakership. How long does she serve as acting president? Well, the 12th Amendment says the acting president holds this position until a president or vice president, keep in mind the vice president is ahead of the speaker in the line of succession, shall be qualified. Qualifying means the House finally pierces uh, uh, its impasse and duly elected president uh, in the contingent election a prescribed, uh, as prescribed rather by the 12th Amendment. We've never had an acting president. Uh, that would be new and disconcerting. Although new and disconcerting, I think we're getting used to. Uh, One uh, law professor um, argues that circumstances could create the two claims scenario. That's where there's um, two people say that they are rightfully president on January 20th. Now, if you had asked me this on December 15th of last year, I would have thought this preposterous. But this is, of course, 2020 and virtually anything could happen. Well, this does count as the ultimate constitutional crisis. Our president now on January 20th needs the nuclear codes, the so-called nuclear football, and the Pentagon needs to know who's commander-in-chief starting right at noon on January 20th. Well, in a pre-nuclear world, the U.S. came close to two claims, says um, Hayes and Tilden in 1877 disputed the outcome. Well, a backroom congressional deal ultimately awarded the presidency to Hayes, as you probably know if you remember your presidents, even staving off a Senate filibuster. Well, Congress determined uh, Hayes won the Electoral College 185 to 184. Tilden captured the popular vote by three points. Well, detractors call the new president Ruther Fraud B. Hayes. Well, to be clear, these scenarios are pretty far-fetched, but not impossible, and they raise a bigger question. Would Americans accept any of these outcomes in today's toxic political climate? It's a good question, and I'm not sure the answer is yes. 
Well, Senate Republicans released a report on Wednesday detailing the existence, the extensive rather, business dealings that Hunter Biden pursued with politically connected foreign nationals while his father Joe Biden was serving as vice president. Now, my guess is at this point, most of the American people don't care. We don't often care about things we should care about. But nonetheless, the 87-page interim report comes amid a months-long probe in which members of the Senate Homeland Security and Finance Committees and their staff reviewed more than 45,000 pages of Obama administration records and interviewed eight witnesses, many of whom are current or former U.S. officials. The Treasury records acquired by the chairman show potential criminal activity relating to transactions among and between Hunter Biden, his family, and his associates with Ukraine, Russia, Kazakh, and Chinese nationals, the report reads. In particular, these documents show that Hunter Biden received millions of dollars from foreign sources as a result of business relationships that he built during the period when his father was vice president of the United States and after. That Hunter Biden served on the board of the Ukrainian gas company Burisma Holdings while his father was leading the Obama administration's efforts in Ukraine is well established, but the 50000 per month board seat was just one component of the younger Biden's foreign ventures during the Obama years. According to Treasury Department records obtained by the committee, he also pursued business dealings with politically connected Russian, Chinese, and Kazakh nationals. Well, in the course of his globe-trotting business career, Hunter Biden racked up more than $4 million in questionable financial transactions, that's in quotes, with well-connected foreigners. He partnered with Chinese businessmen connected to the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army. He took cash from the wife of the corrupt former mayor of Moscow, and he sent funds to Ukrainian and Russian nationals living in the U.S. that are linked to what appears to be an Eastern European prostitution or human trafficking ring, according to the report, again, just recently released. But it was only Hunter's work for Burisma that caught the attention of Obama administration State Department officials who said the role created counterintelligence and extortion concerns. Well, acting Deputy Chief of Missions at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, Ukraine, George Kent warned Vice President Joe Biden's office in early 2015 that Hunter's work for Burisma undermined the administration's anti-corruption efforts in the country since the gas company's owner, who Kent described as an odious oligarch in his testimony, is famously corrupt. Furthermore, the presence of Hunter Biden on the Burisma board was very awkward for all U.S. officials pushing an anti-corruption agenda in Ukraine, Kent wrote in an email to his colleague back in 2016. Well, Kent told Joe Biden's staff that someone needed to talk to Hunter Biden and he should uh, step down from the board of Burisma, according to the report. But it doesn't appear Kent's request was carried out since Hunter remained on the board throughout the rest of Obama's term. U.S. Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy Affairs, Amos Hochstein, he also raised concerns about Hunter's work for Burisma with the vice president, but his complaints went unaddressed, according to the report. Well, this investigation has illustrated the extent to which officials within the Obama administration ignored the glaring warning signs when the vice president's son joined the board of a company owned by a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch, the report's executive summary states. And while concerns over his business dealings in Ukraine didn't prompt any decisive action from the administration, they did reach the desk of Secretary of State John Kerry, contradicting his later claim that he was never aware that Hunter served on the Burisma board. The day after Hunter joined the board in May of 2014, Kerry's stepson, 
uh, who was a business partner of Hunter's, emailed his father to inform him of Hunter's appointment to the board and to distance himself from the decision. Carey's staff followed up with a briefing on the press inquiries prompted by Hunter's board seat, according to their testimony. Neither Kerry nor anyone else in the administration appears to have intervened to put a stop to the younger Biden's influence peddling. And when asked by a reporter in 2019 whether he had any knowledge of Hunter's work for Burisma, Kerry responded, I had no knowledge about any of that. None. No. You can find out more on that report as uh, it is now online. Hey, uh, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I want to thank James Vlynn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. And I'd like to thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great evening and join us again tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.